Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, our helper and advocate. Open our hearts and minds this day. Entice us with your presence. Spark us with a word of life, a message that we may share with others as we seek to live Christ's love in the world. All this we ask in the name of God, who creates, redeems, and sustains us. Amen. Our first reading is of Psalm 66, verses 8 through 20. All you nations, bless our God. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Our God persevered us, preserved us among the living. He didn't let our feet slip a bit. But you, God, have tested us. You refined us like silver, trapped us in a net, laid burdens on our backs, let other people run right over our heads. We've been through fire and water. But you brought us out to freedom. So I'll enter your house with entirely burnt offerings. I'll keep the promises I made to you, the ones my lips uttered, the ones my mouth spoke. When I was in deep trouble, I will offer the best burnt offerings to you. Along with the smoke of sacrificed rams, I will offer bulls and goats. Come close and listen. All you who honor God, I will tell you what God has done for me. My mouth cried out to God with praise on my tongue. If I cherished evil in my heart, my Lord would not have listened. But God definitely listened. God heard the sound of my prayer. Bless God. God didn't reject my prayer or withhold his faithful love to me. Our second reading comes from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3, verse 13 through 22. Who will harm you if you are zealous for good? But happy are you even if you suffer because of righteousness. Don't be terrified or upset by them. Instead, regard Christ the Lord as holy in your hearts. Whenever anyone asks you to speak of your hope, be ready to defend it. Yet do this with respectful humility, maintaining a good conscience. Act in this way so that those who malign your good lifestyle in Christ may be ashamed when they slander you. It is better to suffer for doing good than doing evil. Christ himself suffered on account of sin. Once for all, the righteous one on behalf of the unrighteous. He did this in order to bring you into the presence of God. Christ was put to death as a human, but made alive by the Spirit. And it was by the spirits he went to preach to the spirits in prison. In the past, these spirits were disobedient when God patiently waited during the time of Noah. Noah built an ark in which a few, that is eight, lives were rescued through water. Baptism is like that. It saves you now, not because it removes dirt from your body, but because it is the mark of a good conscience towards God. Your salvation comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who is at God's right side. Now that he has gone into heaven, he rules over all angels, authorities, and power. Amen. 
Our third reading, and what I'll be pre preaching from this morning, is from the New Testament book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 22 through 31. Paul stood up in the middle of the council on Mars Hill and said, People of Athens, I see that you are very religious in every way. As I was walking through town and carefully observing your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. What you worship as unknown, I now proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth. God doesn't live in temples made with human hands. Nor is God served by human hands as though God needed something since God is the one who gives life, breath, and everything else. From one person, God created every human nation to live on the whole earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their lands. God made the nations so that they would seek God, perhaps even reach out to God and to find God. In fact, excuse me. In fact, God isn't far away from any of us. In God, we live, move, and exist. As some of your own poets said, we are God's offspring. Therefore, as God's offspring, we, need, we have no need to imagine that the divine being is like gold, silver, or stone, or bronze, no image made by human skill or thought. God overlooks ignorance of these things in the past, but now directs everyone everywhere to change their hearts and lives. This is because God has set a day when God intends to judge the world justly by a man he has appointed. God has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. In the year 51 AD, Silas, Timothy, and Paul had been preaching the gospel in Thessalonia and Berea, where they had received, where they got what they had hoped for and prayed about. They had received a favorable response. But as a result, Paul was being persecuted by the Jewish leaders who didn't want him to preach that Jesus is the Messiah. The pressure on Paul was building so much that he felt he needed to leave and do so quickly. So he took a boat and traveled 200 miles to Athens, going ahead of Timothy and Silas. Later, he would send for them. In other words, Paul wanted to get away from potential trouble that would not allow him to keep sharing the good news about the risen Christ. So to Athens he went alone, preaching the gospel all along the way to anyone and everyone who would listen. At that time, Athens was the intellectual center of the world, and scholars from all over the earth made Athens their home. Athens was famous for many things, including philosophy, fine arts, and good manners. Athens was a historic and cultured city, very proud of its history, 
and full of idols made by the hands of the best Greek architects and those that could sculpt could offer. So when Paul gets to town, to Athens, he does what any tourist does. He takes a walk, he takes a tour, and by doing so, he gets a feel for the city and for the people. He is struck by the number of idols and statues of gods and goddesses. At that time, the population of Athens was about 10,000 people, and get this, there were about 30,000 bronze, silver, stone, gold, graven in images lining the streets. It must have been a dazzling sight. It was a city that was spiritually crowded with temples, shrines, and votive niches on every corner and in nearly every wall. Just imagine it. If there were three statues for every, there were three statues for every living person in the city, that means here in Grand Rapids, we'd have about 33,000 statues. And among those item, idols were the multitudes of statues to the unknown god. One reason there were so many statues to the unknown god is because about five or 600 years before that time, Athens had experienced a plague which killed about a quarter of the population. It seemed like nothing could stop it. We don't know for sure, but it may have been typhoid fever. Perhaps it was their version of COVID, like what we all experienced before there was a vaccine. We were scared, we were desperate. For the people in Athens, they called upon a poet named Ephemendes, who figured out a plan to stop the epidemic. His plan was to set a flock of black and white sheep loose throughout the city. Wherever each sheep lay down, it was sacrificed to the nearest god. But if a sheep should lie down near the shrine of no known god, it was then sacrificed to the unknown god. This all sounds pretty bloody and stinky, um, but it must have appeased the gods. As the story goes, the plan worked. Perhaps it did please the gods. Perhaps the disease had run its course. Or perhaps the Holy Spirit had intervened. Although Paul was a man of culture and he could appreciate much of the city's beauty, he was a Jewish man that was very disturbed by this. And he was a Christian apostle, apostle so he became enraged he knew there was one and only one God. Every idol he saw told him that those in Athens were hungry for God, but they were spiritually empty. This really got Paul fired up. He just couldn't get that idea out of his head. So of course, he jumps in with both feet and he begins teaching and preaching to the people. He finds three groups of people that would listen to him. There were the religious people, the Jews, and some other devout people. There were the street variety pagans. I would like to meet them. Maybe they were juggling or something, I don't know. Street variety pagans. And finally, there were the intellectual philosophical types. The Epicureans 
and the Stoics. These were philosophers. The Epicureans believed that everything happened by chance and death was the end, extinction, with no afterlife. They believed there were gods, but those gods had nothing to do with the world. They were very practical agnostics who believed pleasure is the chief end of man and that a simple lifestyle is the most pleasurable. But yet in their favor, what gave them the most pleasure was helping one another. The Stoics believed everything was God and that whatever happened to them was their destiny. Consequently, they sought to live with apathy and detachment. Their philosophy of life was to maximize positive emotions, reduce negative emotions, and help individuals to hone their own virtue of character. Together, these two philosophies represented the popular pagan alternatives for dealing with the human condition apart from Christ, the Epicures who, let's back up. Together, these two philosophies represented the popular pagan alternatives. It was an interesting group of people that Paul was presenting to. Some thought he was just babbling on and on. Most of the learned people took no notice of Paul, but some whose principles were the most directly contrary to Christianity made remarks upon him. They thought he was full of it. So the apostle Paul dwelt on two points, the principal doctrines of Christianity. Christ is our way and heaven is our end. They looked on this as very different from the knowledge for many, so for they have learned through the ages and what they heard at Athens. They wanted to know more of it, not because it, not because it was so interesting to them and they believed in Christ, but because it was new and strange. So they took Paul to the place where judges sat who inquired into such mat matters. They asked about Paul's doctrine, not again because it was good, but because it was new. They were interested because they were ready to be awed and impressed. They were in pursuit of sensational new information. So they brought Paul to Mars Hills, Mars Hill, where he was surrounded by temples and statues and altars in gold, silver, and bronze. Now, Paul must have had a Dale Carnegie class before he began to speak, because he knew how to get their attention. Or perhaps the hand of God was guiding Paul's thoughts and words so Paul's message could make sense to the people that heard it. No doubt Paul had prayed for and received the inspiration and the know-how to advance the gospel in Athens. He begins with, Hello, I am Paul. I see that all the thing, in all things you are very religious here in Athens. And that naturally leads into the altar of the unknown God. Paul knew what to do. He could speak to any audience. He met the people where they were at. He started with a compliment, telling them they were very religious. He didn't start with an argument. He didn't come right out and tell them, you are wrong. You see, 
Other religious views and philosophies don't have to be blasted as false in order to prove the gospel true. Paul has established common ground. And once they were on the same page, Paul began dishing out doses of spiritual truth. First, he talked about God not being made of material things like bronze, silver, or gold. The truth is that God is the maker who made all things and cannot be worshiped by anything made by human hands. Mistakenly, we people often worship what our own hands have made. God has guided history. It was God who was behind the rise and the fall of nations and the days gone by. God's hand was and is at the helm of all things. In other words, nothing happens without God. So Paul quotes some of their own poets, a man named Artis, who is known for saying, we are his offspring. And why does Paul quote pagan poets? He does this to keep their attention. He does this to maintain an open rapport. He does this to make the message familiar and personal. Again, Paul could fit his message for any audience. Of all the things he speaks, the creator God, who cannot be captured in temples or made with human hands or poured into molds of human images, he preaches that this is a God of all people, a God that is not distant from any of us, the divine being present to us all, a God who loves each and every one of us. He expresses the truth about God. And he reminded them that their own poets had said the same thing. In or perhaps through whom we live and move and have our being, for we are his family. That's what the pagan poets had written. We have to remember that this is the one God who is the parent to us all who is not far from any of us. We all belong to God, and we all belong to a family. We are the family of God. So how do we know that God is there? A few years ago, this time of the year in the spring, I took a walk, and I ran into a mom with two little kids. Maybe they were five and three and one in the stroller. And it was springtime, and we were all eager to be out in the sun. So we struck up a conversation. And in the middle of it, the five-year-old said to me, have you seen any fairies? And of course, the mom can tell by the look on my face, I'm taken off guard. And the mother rescues me and says, or have you seen signs of fairies? I said, I've seen signs of many fairies and I pointed out the things, the tulips, the green grass, the happy dogs on the street, the fresh air, all the things to that child that may have been signs of fairies. But we know better. We know 
They are signs of the one and only true God who loves all of us and helps us all to belong to that one family that covers the earth. Amen.